Welcome to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Today we pay our monthly visit to the Queen City Cellar Tellers storytelling event in Bangor. This month the theme was Ghost Stories, and the featured nonprofit was the Bangor Historical Society. Chris Roberts emceed. Wow! Thank you all so much for coming. Holy smokes. This is the fourth one that we've done of the Queen City Cellar Tellers. We usually have about 30 to 35 people, so we are not really... We know a lot of people RSVP'd on the Facebook page, but you never know how that's going to go. So this is crazy. So thank you so much, everybody, for coming out uh, to my home away from home. I'm Chris Roberts. I own the Juice Cellar. Um, Owned it since 2013 when we started in Belfast in a very, another very old building that has a lot of tales that go along with it. And the Belfast Opera House was built in the 1800s. And this building here as well, built in the 1800s. And there's a lot of activity in this space, in this whole building. So um, if you do feel something tap you on the shoulder, don't be too alarmed. It might just be the spirit that tends to follow me around. Um, We've got a really cool lineup of storytellers this evening. I'm really excited. I love Halloween, love ghost stories. Um, I've been really into ghosts for a really long time, and my biggest exciting ghost time was in college. I went to Berklee College of Music, and um, my dormitory was where one of the uh, victims of the Boston Strangler was found, um, dead in her bathtub. And every once in a while, it would feel to me like there was something in my room. But I wasn't quite sure. I kind of skeptical, all of that. I grew up with uh, definitely a skeptic father. and um, So it ended up... I slept on the top bunk, three feet above me, through the ceiling was the bathtub where that woman was found. And it was, it was definitely uh, interesting for the rest of the year that I was in that room. And and the girls who were in that room, we would hang little ghosts on their doorknob and kind of have fun with it. But that building definitely has a lot of activity as well. There's been... Things that follow me around uh, from the shop in Belfast, uh, I would be able to see things. I thought it was this customer that would always come in. I saw through the crack of my refrigerator as I opened it up, and I said, oh, hey, how you doing? And I closed the refrigerator, but no one's there. But you heard the door open and close, saw someone walk in, and then nothing. Um, there's definitely been things that follow me around here and that follow me around at my house. Um, I love it. There's a lot of people who would not be really into it, but I personally love knowing that there's spiritual activity that can follow me around. My mom had passed away when I was 26 years old, so it's good to know that there's a chance that she's still following me around too. Um, So we've got Matt Bishop, from Bangor Historical Society, who's going to start things off. And then we're going to have uh, Jonathan Ray Spinney, 
Renee Johnson, who has been my partner for 11 and a half years or so now. I thought that was falling on me. That was, that was scary. <laughs> and then Rick Haney, uh, who's, I don't know if you guys have followed this Facebook page um, about Bangor, but Rick posts up these really cool pictures of, uh, of Bangor architecture now and then and kind of tells stories about these architectural ghosts of Bangor. And he's going to be able to tell uh, some really neat stuff for us, and then Arthur Morrison as well. So we're going to get right to it. Let Matt Bishop come on up and do your thing. Thank you. It's different being in front of a microphone. I'm just used to walking around Bangor so much, telling a lot of these great ghost stories that you're going to hear. But uh, to start things off a little bit today, it's... um, why these spirits that we all know and love about Halloween is why they might still be inhabiting a lot of these buildings. Uh, there's a couple of great ideas as to why, and uh, one of the more notable and definitely most haunted buildings in Bangor is kind of a great case in point for, um, a great example for why these buildings are haunted. Uh, one would be a very, very traumatic event, most likely a death or a very, very savage beating or um, a very vicious or gruesome stabbing. Another one could be uh, having somebody live in a house and really have that house become part of a person and that long connection, usually something might be left. Uh, The third uh, would be more along the lines of a hotel or a bed and breakfast or a boarding house. We all know that the larger, creepier buildings all seem to be usually more haunted than not, uh, the Bangor House for existence. But uh, the house we're going to be talking about today is the Thomas A. Hill House, which I have a very, very strong connection to myself. I've been working there for a long time, and I will vouch for it that strange things do happen, and there are spirits that are uh, inhabiting that building. Uh, The house was actually built in 1835, and while it was one of the older houses in Bangor in terms of residence, we kind of attribute to a lot of the spirits of the mayor of Bangor during the Civil War. His name was Sam Dale. Um, I don't usually like telling the story at the Hill House because I spend a lot of time there alone and I don't really want to make him angry. But uh, Mayor Dale died in rather suspicious circumstances in 1871. Uh, His wife Matilda and their two children ended up going to church one Sunday morning and on when they returned home, they found Mayor Dale dead up in one of the upstairs bedrooms. Um, the s- suspicious circumstances is they thought that he was embezzling money from the city of Bangor in relief efforts for the Great Chicago Fire that happened earlier on in that year. Uh, paranormal investigators have come to the Hill House many, many times and uh, even came away with some of the EVPs, which stands for Electronic Voice Phenomena, saying, I am here and doing uh, spectrographic readings in our executive director's office, uh, which is known to be a very interesting paranormal vortex. Uh, The second week on the job for our current director, she yells through the wall like she has this very, very great habit of doing to me, and Matt, you need to get in here now. So I've I've heard that quite often, so I figured it was something out of place, but uh, she was sitting there. She's kind of allergic to cigarette smoke. Her eyes were very, very tearful, and she was starting to cough a little bit. 
And this immediately triggered some responses. Uh, she's actually the third director that I've had that have sat in that office and all have sm smelled smoke from sitting in that one chair. The paranormal vortex that they found was actually inhabiting that area right up above that desk. Uh, Mayor Dale was a very, very known uh, pipe smoker. But um, a traumatic death can stay and cause a spirit to stay in that area. Uh, his wife, Matilda, who uh, survived her husband and inhabited that building for over 60 years. Uh, many visitors to the museum have often seen the very veiled, pale lady walking through the hallways and having catching glimpses around our storage, uh, storage space. Um, while she had this very, very strong connection, she uh, really never left the house. Uh, and while you can still go in certain spots on the upstairs where they would have had their bedrooms, every time I walk on one side and turn a corner into the hallway, I'm expecting to see somebody. Uh, May, uh, Matilda, after her husband passed away, ended up opening the house to boarders and uh, just did everything she possibly could to make sure that this house, this very, very well-known piece of architecture in Bangor would stay open, stay healthy, and be vibrant. Because we all know if a house isn't populated, the house will die and the house will deteriorate. So you have a lot where the spirits might want to stay in the house to make sure that does not go away. But bringing in the borders, you never know what type of psychological and mystical baggage some of these people may or may not be bringing into the home. Uh, I've had a me uh, several mediums visit me last year uh, and plain as I'm talking to you guys right now, this one lady started rocking on, her hand, uh, rocking on her feet saying, this is where Matilda and her cat used to stay. It wasn't the formal parlor where they would have had the very extravagant parties for Ulysses S. Grant and these other notable Bangor people, but it was that quiet, comfortable, very not ornate room that she felt uh, closer to her husband where he would have had his library and that's where she felt the most comfortable. And I did mention the cat. Uh, we do have a ghost cat. A little on the cuter side, but uh, often people have come in while we all know that connection for uh, the remaining of cigarette smoke, the pet dander and everything seems to stay. I'm a little bit immune because I've had cats my whole life, but I've had a very, very allergic aunt who came to visit me one day. She immediately walked in and seized up. I've had people come in and look and say, oh, you have a cat here. No. But the cat in the medium for this lady that she would have had on her rocking chair, rocking in front of the fireplace just for pure comfort, um, was her sense of peace and her sense of happiness. Being in that house for as long as she was to her dying day where she did die in the same room as her husband in the upper, upper floors. Um, but we would go on to just have the strange feelings, the strange cold spells. You will often notice if you spend enough time in a old home, you can kind of tune out that uh, fan that's always going or that one branch that's always wrapping the window. But you always kind of know when something's a little off where you hear these new noises, even when you've only been spending about 10 years in that building. Um, Spirits definitely will stay, and you do can feel them, and you do know when they are around. 
So if you've ever been going around in all Bangor buildings or any of the old buildings, you can definitely feel some sort of a presence there. That's all I got. Jonathan Spinney. I've only told this story to my children and a couple of close people. And I've experienced firsthand two or three very powerful ghost experiences here in Maine. And I got to prelude this a little bit back up. There were two significant years in my life leading up to the story I want to tell you. I'll try to get it out quick. Uh, 15 was a powerful year for me. I'd never met my real dad. My sister and I were in a foster home in California. And they found my father here in Maine. And so they just they called him up and asked him if he wanted us. And they shipped us up here. He was a raging alcoholic. I hated him, but I loved Maine. So. Uh, Stayed, and uh, before two weeks before they put us on a plane from Maine, I was went to the beach with one of my buddies. Cause that's what you did in Southern California, in San Diego, and we were at La Jolla Beach. And I got it was a stormy day, and we were warned not to go in. And sure enough, I went in and got caught in a riptide and did what you're not supposed to do: swim against it, and got pulled under and literally drowned and was out of my body. Fortunately, the lifeguards in the tower were already in the Jeep coming down the beach when I was being pulled under. So I watched the whole rescue scene from above as I was moving out away. And I had a very powerful afterlife experience. And I think that that may have been some kind of trigger to open me up to other realms. And some of the work I do in research and writing is all about you know other realms. But uh, so then the next, the, the year that this happened, I was 27, and at, at 27, I was pretty much still a free spirit, hadn't been married yet, no children yet, just doing what I wanted to do, fishing, canoe was always on the top of my car, and helping friends build their houses, because back, back then you could afford to do that. You could help your friends build houses, you didn't have to worry about all the bills like you have today. And I was helping a friend build a house, and I met this woman, named Judy, and she had a daughter that was five years old named Heidi, and she was sort of destitute, and I was, uh, I've always been sort of a humanitarian, so we kind of hooked up, and we got a house, uh, an apartment, out in Stetson. Route, you go out Union Street, you drive, I don't know, about 15 miles, you come to the little crossroad in Stetson. Right there on the corner on the right is a huge building that used to be the, the schoolhouse. And uh, the, someone bought it 25, 30 years ago, or maybe even longer, and turned it into four apartments. It's it still got the old bell tower on top. I don't know, maybe it was a church 100 years ago, I'm not sure. We moved in, and one of the first t uh, signs of a haunting, I think, that I have come to know is, is water issues. Plumbing or watering is water issues. If your water starts turning colors or starts staining your dishes or, or your clothes or something, that's always a sign that something isn't right. I think because water is spirit, connected, is the closest thing that we have in our life that is spirit. I mean, we're 70% water, we're, we're spiritual beings. 
And uh, so the water, the first thing we noticed was everything was getting stained. And we, you know, we went down, I talked to the landlord, I said, you know, he said, well, I've got all these expensive filters and nothing was working. So that was the first thing we noticed. And we settled in, a couple weeks went by, and every single night, we were on the second floor, and every single night we would hear this partying, teenagers partying upstairs, just for hours and hours and hours. It would not stop till two or three in the morning. And finally, after about three or four weeks, I, I had had enough. So I said, I'm going up there. So I go out in the hallway, and I'm looking for the stairwell to get upstairs. And uh, couldn't find anything. So I found this one little old door. I opened the door, and there was an old ladder. So I climbed up the ladder, and I went up. And all it was was this big open attic. Nothing up there. The old bell tower, the bell was gone, but the, you could see the t way up in the tower, the old beams, everything. Um, you know, I'm thinking, this is bizarre, you know, because the parting is coming from here. But while I was up there, looking around, I found this old black horse, about this big. You know, the, the, old, the toys in the old days were cast iron, metal, whatever. And it was in good shape. It was, it was pretty heavy. And I said, well, maybe Heidi will want to play with that. So I brought it down and gave it to Heidi, and that was that. The partying still went on. I, I was, you know, we were definitely spooked about it, but we just kind of let it go. And another week or so went by, and I came home one night, one late afternoon, from helping a friend building a house covered with sawdust, dirty, sweaty. It was in the summer, about August, mid-August, and Judy had gotten dinner ready, and we sat down, and they both wouldn't eat. They were pale as a ghost, and they, were, they wouldn't eat. And I, I asked them what was wrong, and they said, you've got to take that horse and put it back in the attic. And I said, why? And they said, because it's moving around the apartment by itself. And I said, no, I, no way. You know, I'm just, you know, a little bit skeptical. But they were really... Really, they didn't touch the food. They were just intent, you've got to take the horse and put it back. They didn't even want to touch the horse. So I said, well, all right. I'll, it, was, it was sitting near, in, on the wall, near the wall in the, in the dining room. So I, I went and I said, well, I'll just go put it in the bedroom for now. And then after I take my shower, I'll, I'll put it up there. So I picked it up and took it down the hall, put it in the room, shut the door, came back and ate dinner. They still sat there, stone-faced cold, white as a ghost, didn't, wouldn't, wouldn't eat. So I finished, and I, I went right to the bathroom. I you know, took my clothes off, whipped over the shower curtain, and the horse was standing in the bathtub. And I just about had a heart attack. So I put my clothes back on and took the horse and took, took it right back up to the attic. And then I said, well, i got to find out what's going on here. So I went, I said, I'm going to go ask questions. The next day, I went all around town, and I finally found some people at the local store that would tell me about the building. They said, oh, that building's been haunted for years. And I said, why? They said, because that used to be the town school where all the grades, including high school, went in that building. And there was a tragedy in Stetson a number of years ago where four teenagers in a car were killed suddenly. Had a, in a car crash from the high school class. 
and they never, they believed that they were in the building still, their spirits were in the building. And I think I've come to know over, through other experiences and, and, and writing about this, that a lot of ghosts and spirits that are hanging around are from, you know, people that just aren't ready to go. Sudden things, tragedies, you know, they're not ready to let go. And they, sometimes they may, they may not let go for many, many years. And I think those teenagers didn't want to let go and they were still up there. They were, they were, they were, they were partying in the attic before they were killed. It turned out they were up there partying before they went in the car ride and, and had the accident. So uh, I think they were there. I think the, somehow they, the, you know, a lot of the haunting objects do move. If you really look around the world and some of the real incredible ghost stories, obje objects move all, all the time. So anyway, that's my story. <laughs> You're listening to Main Currents on WERU. Today we're making our monthly visit to the Queen City Cellar Tellers Storytelling Event in Bangor. In October, the theme was Ghost Stories, and the featured nonprofit was the Bangor Historical Society. So we have another really cool story uh, from Renee over there, my partner in crime. Uh, I was going to share some stories that I've heard so many times it just feels like they're my own and uh, they're definitely <coughs> scary. So here's Renee. Thanks, that was quite the buildup. Um, I actually didn't plan on telling a story. I'm, I'm a fan of storytelling, um, which is why Chris and I uh, started this series. But um, I didn't plan to tell a story, and then we had somebody who at the last minute couldn't do it. So last night I decided that I guess I, I'm, I meant to, to tell this story. So I'm going to be reading it. Sorry. <laughs> but I hope it's still good. My younger brother and I were born in the innocuous suburbs of Boston to parents who loved the beauty and history of Maine. During summer weekends, they would pack me and Wayne into their old blue Chevy van and head north, stopping at the antique stores and flea markets that dotted Route 1, would camp and canoe and hike and house hunt. One particularly rainy vacation day, my parents ducked into a real estate office in Ellsworth, looking for something indoors to do with their three and five-year-olds in tow. My mom locked onto a photograph posted on the wall of an old brown colonial style house. Built in 1851 by a sea captain, it sat on two and a half acres overlooking Prospect Harbor with a view of the working lighthouse and surrounded by thick forest. This one, my mom said, I want to go see this house. No, not that house, the realtor tried to persuade. It's old and it's been sitting vacant for a really long time. Plus, it's a half hour's drive and with the rain, he figured they were just a young couple from Mass, up for the weekend, killing time in the rain with their antsy kids, not an actual sales prospect. But my mom insisted, so of course we went. As we drove up to the house, my brother and I got excited. It looked huge compared to our little cape where we lived, and there was a big lawn and climbing trees and the ocean. The realtor stood on the large granite slab step and unlocked the old wooden door to let us in. My dad entered first with Wayne and me, while my mom took our golden retriever, Rocky, for a quick walk around the yard to relieve himself. As my mom approached the door, my dad said to the realtor, I love it, but wait until you see my wife's face. 
My mom stepped inside and almost immediately turned to the realtor and asked, where do we sign? But don't you want to see the rest of the house, he asked. Well, of course I do, but I can feel it. This is it. This is the house we've been looking for. By the end of that summer, I remember riding in the back of that blue van once again, wearing my footy pajamas and tucked in between Wayne and Rocky and all my stuffed animals as we pulled up to Captain Handy's house, our new home. My parents busied themselves getting our family settled in. They patched plaster and tore away peeling wallpaper. My dad ripped up aging and cracked vinyl flooring to expose beautiful hardwood floors beneath. One particularly ambitious day while my dad was at work, my mom took a mallet to the drop ceiling in the kitchen. Her suspicions were confirmed when solid beams revealed themselves above, beams taken from the merchant ship belonging to Captain Handy. They often noted that they felt proud, that they felt that they had purchased a piece of history. Not long after moving in, we started meeting neighbors in our new town. People were curious about the young family from away who had moved into the old house that had sat vacant for 25 years. I was a very shy little girl, would not have been up here telling this story. <laughs> I'm sure my parents are surprised. Um, and I was usually found hidden behind my parents as strangers approached with stories about our house. Our next door neighbor had, for years, watched a rocking chair rocking by itself in the upstairs window. A former owner recalled standing on a chair while cleaning and feeling a tap on her shoulder. She looked to one side, then felt a tap on the other, causing her to lose her balance and fall off the chair. But no one was there to catch her fall. Friends of my parents from Mass visited one afternoon, and the moment the wife stepped through the doorway, she held up her hands and asked, is anyone here? Just the kids, but my husband is at work. But the woman said, no, I mean spirits, because I can feel them in this house. My mom has always been fascinated with the supernatural, so she embraced the idea that perhaps our new home was haunted. Visitors were always commenting on the age of the house, and they'd want to know the history. Inevitably, the ghost stories would be told. I developed a habit of sticking my fingers in my ears and humming so I wouldn't hear the stories. They terrified me. Shy as I was, I, started, I was excited to start first grade at Goolsboro Grammar School. I eagerly awaited at the end of our long dirt driveway for the bus to pick me up on my first day. As I made my way up the aisle, though, I heard the other children whisper, that's the girl that moved into the haunted house. When I got off the bus at the end of the day at 3 p.m., still hearing those voices, I walked extra slowly up our long driveway, carefully studying all the windows for that haunted rocking chair. Little by little, this piece of history started to reveal itself to us. As my dad tore down walls and pulled up flooring, he would find remnants of the past, like old newspapers dated from the 1850s and vintage colored glass bottles. Wayne and I would play for hours in the woods surrounding the house, uncovering old leather shoes and bed springs and tea kettles. Wayne, at just four years old, would ride his bike in circles around our driveway and play with imaginary friends who lived in the trees. He was a very quiet and thoughtful little brother, well-behaved and not mischievous. So I believed him when he would ask innocently, who is that man walking by the window wearing a top hat? 
or when we would head up the stairs towards our bedrooms at night, he'd casually mention the man he saw in my room earlier that day. Previous owners, Lily and Froggy Joy, used to rent the attic room at the top of the staircase to men working at Stinson's Sardine Canning Factory, which operated across the street for more than a century. The windowless room was lined with cots where the workers would retire to sleep between shifts. When we moved in, that attic room was transformed into our playroom, where Wayne spent hours zooming matchbox cards around the braided rug and playing school with me. One Sunday morning, we got called out of the playroom to finish getting ready for church. Come here and I'll tie your shoes, my dad called to Wayne, who still hadn't learned to tie them himself yet. Okay, but the nice man in the cape already tied them for me, Wayne said, showing off his perfectly tied shoes. Toward the end of Lily's life, she became too ill to go up the staircase to her bedroom, so her bed was moved down to the room that later became our living room. She eventually passed away in that room. If the lights were off, I'd catch an outline of a figure in the corner of my eye or feel a chill, or feel a chill in the still, warm air. I developed the habit of turning every light on in the house, and I refused to have sleepovers in the living room. As I grew older and we were allowed to stay home alone, I'd have every TV and radio on when my parents were gone. Wayne continued to see figures on the staircase, always men from a bygone era, wearing a top hat or a cape. We wondered, were they the men, long since deceased, still returning to their place of rest in the attic room? I remember someone saying that spirits often reveal themselves to children first, because they are much more open than adults. So I tried to shut myself off completely to any possibility that a spirit would try to connect with me. I'd lay in bed telling them, go away. I'd whisper, I don't believe in you. But then I'd catch myself in the circular logic of actually telling them that I didn't believe in them. And then I'd get nervous that I upset them by denying their existence. <laughs> but my parents invested years of love, attention, and careful restoration into this old home. They honored its heritage, so the spirits remained peaceful. Years after moving in, while out to dinner at a restaurant, an unfamiliar man came up to my parents and introduced himself as Gordon, the previous owner of the house. With little preface, he simply asked, do you want me to bring him back? Bring who back, my mom asked. The ghost who was living in your house. He explained that he and his wife, while never having lived there themselves, always felt someone's presence in the house while they were restoring it. So they conducted a spirit cleansing before they sold the house. No, that's all right, my mom replied, unfazed. If he wants to come back, he is welcome to come back on his own. The thing is, we don't think he ever left. Rick Haney, come on down. Wow, look at all the people. It's not, uh, if I, te I tend to ramble and I sometimes I talk fast. It's part the disorganizational malfunction in my brain, and it's also partly an intense, debilitating, debilitating fear of public speaking. So <laughs> it's not that bad. I'll, I'll try to manage it. But So my name is Rick Haney. I lived in Bangor almost my whole life. Uh, I've always been very spiritual. 
I wouldn't ever say that I, well, I wouldn't have believed when I was younger that I saw, I would ever see a ghost. But sometimes a, a, a ghostly experience will happen without you even realizing it, and you'll realize that after the fact, and you'll like pass out because you're so shocked it actually happened to you. Such is the case with many of my, and I, I've had a lot of experiences, <clears throat> and, and after each time, I never realized it happened until long after the fact. So if it's all right with you guys, I'll share a couple of stories because um, they're kind of quick. I'll try not to elaborate too much, or embellish, rather. So uh, the first one I'd like to mention was uh, my fraternity house at the University of Maine. Uh, I was a member of Sigma Chi fraternity. My house was built in the summer of 1935. I lived in the house in the early 1990s. And uh, one particular spring break, I was the only one left in the house. I was actually, because I was local, some of the guys who had gone away for spring break had actually left me in charge of the house to just make sure that everything was, you know, on the level. I think they just didn't want other people squatting there when we were gone. I don't, I can't remember. But so anyway, I was left in charge, and it just so happened that with most spring breaks, which happened the end of February into March, it's the most violent winter weather imaginable in this area. And this spring break in particular was a very, very bad snowstorm. And it felt like Jack Torrance in The Shining. And the more I thought about The Shining, the more I wanted to crawl out of my own skin. And, uh, and of course, you know, when you get scared, your mind plays tricks on you. And I always was convinced that that was the case with me. Well, it was one of our brothers had come up that night because he had just started dating his girlfriend, and she lived across campus in a sorority house, and they had decided to go out that night for dinner while it was literally snowing sideways, and I wasn't sure if they were going to make it back. And so I'm in my room on the second floor, basically in panic mode because it was an old house, there was a lot of noises, and my mind got away from me. Well, I heard the door open and close in the, in the back of the house. And I jumped up out of my couch, and I thought, oh, thank God, he's home. I can't take this anymore. And I kind of begrudgingly peeked out my door into the hallway, and I, I heard, heard him coming up the stairs. And I peeked out, and I'm watching him. And, and I see him come out of the stairwell and make a sharp left into the bathroom at the end of the hall. Well, I just about jumped for joy, knowing that I wasn't the only one in the house. So I, so I thought, I'm going to go scare him for leaving me alone all this time. And I had it all planned out, tiptoeing down the hall, being really quiet. And I kicked the door open. Boo! And the lights were off. And there was nobody in there. And all of a sudden, this cloud of chilling, bone-chilling cold air fell over me. And all the windows were closed. But it was ice cold in that room. And I ran like the Dickens downstairs, <laughs> lit the fireplace, and uh, snuggled up in the blanket, and never really told anybody what happened, because I knew nobody would believe me. But later that year, a couple of other geniuses in the house decided that they wanted to play with the Ouija board. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. That's bad, bad, bad. Bad juju. You don't want that. <laughs> And of course, they did it anyway. And of course, I went along with it because <laughs> bravado, stupidity, they go hand in hand. 
Well, there was probably half a dozen people sitting around this Ouija board asking stupid questions, and the same thing kept happening. You know, uh, the, the what, do you, what do you call the, does anybody know what those thing, that thing is called where you put your fingers on it? Planchette. planchette thank you. <laughs> the planchette was going around to the same letters. And, I'm, I'm, and nobody else realized what was going on. I said, you guys, do you see a pattern here maybe? Try to make sense of it. And it kept spelling M-T-V-R-N. And so somebody said, M-T-V-R-N, what does that mean? And then it would spell fire. M-T-V-R-N, is that your name? No. Are you a man or a woman? And it went to man, uh, to M rather. So we thought, okay, I'm sorry, it went, to, it went to F for female. So you're a female. Are you, was there a fire somewhere? Right to yes. Okay, so you are a female that was involved in a fire somewhere. Where are you? MTVRN. 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 Well, of course, back then, you know, MTV was huge. And it was actually known for showing music videos, which is not the case today. Um, so oh, we're all thinking, oh, MTV, you know, whatever. And so we never put it together. And finally, what we, what we did was we, we, we said, okay, so you're a girl. Did you die in a fire? Yes. Okay. Are you angry with us? Yes. Do you want us to leave? Yes. And so this is when I started to backpedal out of the room because I knew, I knew this was destined for just complete ugliness, and I wanted nothing to do with it. And so they kind of hung up their shoes and decided that it, they'd call it a night. And by this time, it was like 4 in the morning, and I went to bed. Some of the guys left the house because they were too freaked out, and then other guys just didn't know what to make of it. So the next morning, we had an alumni function, and one of our alumni brothers who lived in the house when it was first built overheard us telling the story of what we had done the night before. And he comes over with a cup of coffee and, he, and, he sh and his hands are trembling and he goes, I want you guys to tell me the story very carefully. Don't leave anything out. Okay, so we told him the story. And he said, do you guys have any idea what you've uncovered? And we were like, no, please enlighten us. <laughs> And he said, well, if you'd done some research, you would have known that on the very foundation of this house, the, the very foundation of this house was built, um, this house was built upon the foundation of another house that burned in the, in the summer of 1934. This house was put on top of that foundation, and that original structure was the Mount Vernon Girls' School, and there was a girl who died. She's not happy with you. So if I were you, I would take that Ouija board and burn it, and throw it out in the river, do whatever you want with it. So we did. <laughs> we did that moment. So how am I doing on time? Am I over the board here? Do I have time for another one? Three minutes. Three minutes? Okay, so I got a quick one. There was a story. My best friend growing up lived at 3 Boynton Street, which is over on Court Street by the old uh, police station. And I was probably, I started going there in fourth or fifth grade, and I spent all of my time there. And when I was at the point where I was old enough to spend the night there, um, 
I was I was there every weekend, and we we raced a lot of trouble and had a lot of fun. But there came a point, uh, probably middle school, where I started to be incredibly uncomfortable, and I would wake up in the middle of the night with this real heavy weight on my shoulder, or on my chest, and around my shoulders, like somebody was pressing me down and holding me there. And this was right around the time that he wanted to sneak out a lot and go see girls in the middle of the night. And whenever we wanted to do that, I had this tremendous weight on my shoulders, like, you know, you're staying here, you're not going. And most of the time, we ended up staying. Well, the one night that I got out, um, that we got out, we snuck out the window, and I heard, the second I, I stepped out the window, I heard like a, 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 like a sword coming out of its holster, like a metal, and it went right by my head. And I looked around, and I'm like, what was that? And he heard it. He, he knew what was going on. And throughout all this time, I had been piecing together that this force that was holding me down, it would, it would awaken me, but before it would be preceded by a dream of a woman who was saying, help me, help me, help me. I just want to get home, help me. And over time, this woman, she became someone that I could visualize, somebody that I thought had lived there at one point. And what the, vis the energy that she was giving me was, this is my home, and I just want to come in. Can you please help me get in? I, I, I just want to come home. And I never knew what to make of it, but she scared the daylights out of me. And I could tell by her energy that she was very unsafe. And so it came to a point where I could no longer stay in the house because I was so afraid of this woman. I had no idea what she wanted. She wanted something for me, but every time I was in the house, she would somehow manifest into my dream or into my subconscious in the middle of the night. And so I'm like, dude, I can't stay here anymore, sorry. And they eventually ended up selling the house and um, I never went back again. And this was probably the l mid to late 1980s. Uh, that all this is going on. About four years ago, when I started my Ghosts of Bangor project, I was doing research in a lot of the homes in this area. And somehow, in a, in a Google search, 3 Boynton Street came up in the research results. And I, it was a headline from the 1960s. Bangor chambermaid murdered at the Bangor house. Effie McDonald in her late 20s of 3 Boynton Street in Bangor was murdered uh, at the Bangor house. And when I read that, I was in a house up on Pine Street and I ran out of the house <laughs> because I was so terrified that this woman had somehow found me again and now I'm in this totally new structure and here she is, you know, thanks to the technology and Google, this woman's found me. <laughs> How do you get away from it? Well, you can't. There's technology everywhere. So those experiences really led me to where I am today, and I have this intense fascination with the way things used to be, with the people who used to inhabit this area. I started the Ghost of Bangor project because I grew up in, at a time in Bangor when there was nothing but empty buildings and a lot of empty lots where really gorgeous buildings used to be. And most people would just walk right by and see an empty lot, but I actually saw history. I actually was able to envision what was once there. And I think a part of that was from the spiritual experience that I carried with me growing up. So 
That's my story. Thank you. If you're just joining us, this is Main Currents on WERU. These ghost stories were told at a recent Queen City Cellar Teller storytelling event in Bangor. The MC is Chris Roberts. All right, so our final teller is Arthur Morrison. And um, I just want to say a quick thank you to Amy Brown, WERU. And uh, they're going to be recording this broadcast, and it's going to be uh, airing on WERU on a program called Main Currents. So watch our Facebook page. We'll have information when that pops up uh, so you guys can all listen again in the dark, sitting in the corner of your bedroom. <laughs> and um, I just want to thank all the storytellers and all of you guys for coming uh, out to my second home here. Um, we've got other dates coming up for uh, November 20th. It's always the third Friday of the month. Uh, November 20th, the theme is thanks, and we're going to be highlighting Good Shepherd uh, Food Bank. And then December 18th is going to be Family, where we're working with the Maine Discovery Museum, our wonderful neighbors. So, Arthur, come on up. I wanted to tell you a story, a ghost story about my mom. But the last I checked, she's still alive. <laughs> that will now give you a hint of what kind of a dick I am to set everything up that way. I know family friendly, that's the last I'm gonna say, all right? But just to know what I, um, and also admit the coolest thing about everything besides the, the stories and the intensity is when the people walk by, cause you're like, what? It's a, okay, no, it's just, it's just a guy going by. It's just somebody going to Patty's. It's, it's not really a ghost. And I realized, I was asked by Renee to do this, and I guess because of John Greenman and WERU and people know people, and I realize I'll, I'll try to wrap things up. I tend to ramble a bit, too. Uh, but, uh, and was told the subject was ghosts. And it's great that I'm going last, or it would have been great if I had gone first, because my problem with the story choice or the subject matter is that I'm skeptic. I, I don't believe in them. Uh, I believe everybody who believes that they believe in them, but I just don't. I've never had an experience, I've never felt anything, I've never anything. So I started thinking about, well, what, should I just bail? No, because that would be wrong. So I said, no, I'll do it, but then I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I thought, so I'll tell you one quick story about a ghost, and then I'll tell you a, a story about ghosts and spirits. The one story about ghosts is I have a dear friend, Matt Schwartz, and he moved away years ago, and we don't really talk. We talk maybe two times a year. But we, when we were, lived in the same city in Brookline, Massachusetts, very, very good friends. And I would call him every, Thanksgiving, sorry, every Halloween evening at around 10, 10.30. And all I would say was, Matt, I've, I'm not going to lie to you. I've had a couple of beers. And I was outside. And as God is my witness, I swear I saw a ghost tonight. Because it's Halloween and people dress up in Halloween costumes. Now that's funny one time or two times, but now I call, I've been calling him every Halloween for about 30 years now. 
and his wife knows the joke, and his daughter, who's the same age as my daughter, knows the joke. So they just let the phone machine pick up, because they know if I'm talking to the machine, I'll make it even longer. I'll make it like a 40, 45 minute story about, Matt, you're not gonna believe it. And that's how the, the, the line, it starts. So anyway, that's, my, that's that ghost story. The other ghost story that I want to think about, it's more about ghosts and spirits. And as I get older, I am amused and, and filled with joy about things from the past. Uh, and one of the things that I discovered, my wife uh, went, uh, did her surgical residency in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And for those of you who have never been to Tulsa, if you ever get the chance to go, don't. It's a horrible, horrible, <laughs> horrible place. I lived there for five years and it only felt like 500. It was a horrible, horrible place. Some individually, some very nice people, but mostly horrible. So in Tulsa, Oklahoma, only, only I realized at first, I used to say only two great things came out of Tulsa. One was my daughter, Lucy, who was born there in 2003, and the other was our dog, Gracie, who we got before our daughter was born, which means by law we have to love her more. And we did, we loved the dog, because <laughs> we had the dog first. And those of you that are younger siblings, you know, your parents, they lie when they say they love you as much as they, because they don't. The first one they love, and we loved that dog. Anyway, I digress. So the dog, my daughter Lucy, and then I recently discovered when I was here in Maine, I started watching public television, and Saturdays at five o'clock, does anybody know what comes on Maine PBN at Saturdays at five o'clock? I'm gonna blow your minds. But I feel sad that nobody knows this. They broadcast a show that is produced from uh, OETA, which is the Public Television Network in Oklahoma. And what they do is they put together old Lawrence Welk shows. Don't groan yet! <laughs> you bastards. Anyway, and someone will come on and someone will say, this, this is the show from 1970. It was on TV from 1956 until 1982 and they've been rebroadcasting. It's literally been on the air for 60 years. It's been shown somewhere on television. Well, I remember my grandmother watching it, me being like 10, 11 years old back in the 70s, the early 70s, and thinking it was the most horrible thing I had ever seen. And my grandmother was insane. So it came on and I started watching this thing. And it is the greatest thing in the history of television except for those shows where you buy something and fix it up and sell it for more. That's truly the greatest thing in the history of television. But, and what I remember most is that every once in a while they'll show a black and white show, and the black and white shows are okay. But the real show is about 68, 69, when it's Technicolor. And they must have had a budget of polyester and brightly colored polyester that you can't even begin to imagine. The, and, every, and there were 900 orchestra members and everybody had an orange suit or a green suit or a cranberry suit but there were 300 cranberry suits behind all the lime green tuxes that were on TV and the fact that all these colors were happening my mind was exploding just watching it and remembering then how bright the colors were so I started let's say Saturdays around five minutes to five, 
perhaps drinking hard liquor. Let's just say perhaps. <laughs> this is the spirits part of the story. <laughs> it all ties in. Don't worry, I got this. I got this. So, so you get a couple of drinks and you're watching and just the colors are so good. And them trying to pretend that they're really hip by doing like, you know, do you know the way to San Jose in like 71 when it's already five or six years old and they're, you know, shucking and jiving and doing this thing. And they break out, you know, they break out Arthur the black, the one black guy and he's tap dancing. And you're like, don't, don't they even know how horrible they are? But they don't because everybody was so happy to have this job. But after a couple of drinks and after watching this for a couple of weeks, what I started to realize there's a section where Lawrence goes out there and dances or they pan and there's just a musical number and they pan to the audience where there was a section where the people that were there in the studio audience would get up and dance. And they were so, and the camera would pan and people would dance with their partners and they'd look, you know, and they'd look to make sure that they were full-faced for the camera and after a couple of drinks and a couple of weeks of watching this, I started playing a little game with myself. And the game was dead, 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 dead. They were all so old. The youngest, even the youngest people were pretty old and they were probably pretty tired anyway. Dead, 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 dead. So to my skeptical way of thinking, and my sort of non-believer, I think the only really true ghosts that you can count on are all those people that you see in all those TV shows who are dead but are still with us. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they just didn't want to leave Lawrence Welk's studio audience. And that's my story. The youngsters always get a kick out of Halloween. Let's listen to the story of the Wobbling Goblin by Janet, Brian, and Cubby. is a clip from Lawrence Welk's 1958 Halloween special. And you were listening to the Queen City Cellar Tellers Ghost Story Edition. The monthly storytelling event is held on the third Friday evening of each month at Fork and Spoon, which is formerly was known as the Juice Cellar in Bangor. And you've been listening to Main Currents, independent local news, views, and culture here on WERU. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Keep it tuned here for Democracy Now! Coming up next, then jazz straight ahead, and as always, a night of great music here on your community radio station. We are WERU-FM 89.5. Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org.
Thanks for listening. Uh...